0: You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at redeemerbiblechurch.com. Please take your copy of the Scriptures and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In 1522, Martin Luther was preaching on the right way to bring about reform. So he's looking back over the last few years and he's teaching a gathered group. At one point, he was warning those listening that true gospel reform cannot be accomplished by force. He cites Paul's sermon in Acts 17 as an example of a loving plea marked by urgency and even begging. But he points out that there was no use of force. He explained that Paul knew the Word of God had to take hold of sinners' hearts if they were to forsake their idolatry and change. He then places himself in Paul's setting and writes likewise. If I had seen them holding Mass, I would have (laughs) preached to them and admonished them. Had they heeded my admonition, I would have won them if not i would nevertheless not have torn them from it by the hair or employed any force but simply allowed the word to act and prayed for them for the word created heaven and earth and all things the word must do this thing and not We poor sinners. Luther then continues, and many of you have heard this part of the quote before. In short, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no one by force. For faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept and drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The Word did everything. What a statement. I did nothing. The Word did it all. Friends, as we read an account this morning of 3,000 sinners being converted to Christ and the early church beginning to thrive in a hostile world, I think Peter would say exactly what Luther said. I did nothing. The Word did it all. Look at our text with me, beginning in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. If you remember what we've been talking about over the last few weeks, as Peter presented the gospel, the person of Christ, with great clarity and conviction. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they, speaking of those that were converted, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. The word confronts, the word convicts, the word converts, and the word conforms. First, the word confronts. And this really takes us back to last week, but it culminates in verse 37. It takes us back to consider again what we've already seen in Peter's sermon. When Peter begins to speak to the gathered crowd, he does not offer his opinion. He's not speculating about what's happening before them. No, he appeals to the established testimony and the divine authority of Scripture. He first quotes the prophet Joel as a means of explaining the coming of the Spirit. Remember, he said, this is that... Then he makes multiple references to the Psalms to prove Jesus is the Messiah. Everything Peter says is rooted in Scripture. Friends, if Peter is going to be a witness of Jesus and make disciples in Jerusalem, then everything he says must find its basis in the Word of God and point to the Son of God. This is precisely what we've seen in our last two studies, isn't it? I love Article 1 of the New Hampshire Confession. Regarding the Holy Scriptures, it says, We believe that the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction that it has God for its author and salvation for its end. The source of all Scripture is the triune God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, brothers and sisters, because the scriptures are breathed out by God Himself, they are profitable in every way. Everything you find in your Bible is right. But in addition to telling us what is right, the Bible also confronts what is wrong. It rebukes us. But even more, it doesn't stop with telling us what is right and confronting what is wrong. It doesn't leave us wallowing in our despair but it lovingly corrects us as well. Pointing us forward and showing us the way of blessing. The Scriptures train us in righteousness by constantly taking us back to the Gospel. Showing us Jesus so that we might walk in His way. Now how many of you, don't raise your hands, but how many of you played on a sports team coached by someone who was an expert at pointing out what you were doing wrong but never took the time to teach you how to do it correctly? Perhaps some of you experienced the same dynamic with a parent. A mom or dad who never passed up an opportunity to pounce on you for doing something incorrectly but then failed to patiently teach you how to correct your mistakes. Friends, relationships like that produce hopelessness, frustration, and resentment. I'm so grateful that our loving Lord gave us a sufficient Bible. A Bible that teaches, reproves, corrects, and instructs, moving us toward growth and greater joy rather than constant despair. In fact, back to your text what Peter's been doing prior to what's recorded in verse 37 falls into the categories of teaching and reproof. He's explaining to them what is true. And he's confronting their sin. And at the very center of his message is the person and work of Jesus Christ. right? Because Jesus, the gospel, presents us with what is true, but it also exposes our sin and our great need for Christ. He is declaring the gospel, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And this gospel is inherently confrontational. In fact, in expounding on Paul's words to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 11, Charles Spurgeon talked about the offense of the gospel. He said that the message of the cross makes foolish The wisdom of man, it opposes human ability, it denies human merit, and it destroys all man-made distinctions. So it offends us in our natural state in every way. The Gospel declares that we are all guilty sinners, hopeless and helpless to save ourselves, but through faith in Christ alone, any sinful man, woman, boy, or girl can find eternal peace with God. But this is where this starts. Peter, with the Word, confronts his audience. But notice verse 37. The Word convicts. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? As the crowd listened to the word proclaimed, the Holy Spirit began to work. We saw the same thing happening in Nehemiah, didn't we? And do you remember when the book of the law was read and explained before the people? They answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Friend, friends, in instances like Nehemiah 8 and Acts 2 and so many others, we see before us the reality of Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. For the Word of God, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and and no creature. No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Okay, Peter is declaring the Scriptures, and the Spirit of God is taking the scalpel of God's living and powerful Word, cutting to the heart of those listening. They are being exposed, laid bare before the righteous judge, This is why Peter doesn't have to plead with them to respond. But they immediately ask him, what shall we do? They understand that what they've heard demands a response. They've been confronted and now they're being convicted. You see, if you are drowning... You don't wait for someone to politely offer you help. You scream and you flail wildly because you know you're in trouble. You're desperately in need of help. In this case, friends, the people know they're in trouble because God's word has pierced their hearts and opened their eyes. Listen to how Steve Lawson explains this supernatural work of God. He writes, Scripture possesses divine power to convict human hearts, exposing sin and revealing one's true need for God and grace. Convict refers to the judicial act of indicting one who has broken the law with a view toward sentencing them. The idea of conviction pictures a courtroom scene in which the guilty are accused before a judge and justly condemned. So it is with the ministry of the Word of God. When preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, the proclamation of the Word brings the supernatural power of conviction to the guilty soul. Consequently, the need for salvation is exposed and made known to the condemned heart. Again, brothers and sisters, this is a perfect description of what we find in our text. As Peter had declared the gospel in the power of the Spirit, the sin and guilt of the audience has been exposed. The Word of God has done its work. John Calvin described there is nothing so hard or firm in a man, nothing so deeply hidden that the efficacy of the Word does not penetrate through it. Kent Hughes put it even more directly. God's Word cuts through our hard-shelled souls like a hot knife through butter. Now many of you know this work because you have vividly experienced it. In fact, you may be remembering a certain time in your life right now when the Word of God so cut you to the heart and laid you bare that you have never been the same. The convicting power of God's Word is not always pleasant, but it's always good. Like a surgeon who has run all the available tests and believes he knows what is wrong, but he warns you. He warns you that until he makes the incision, he cannot know for sure. The pain of the surgery is a necessary step toward an accurate diagnosis and ultimate healing. So friend, if you want to grow in grace and godliness, the conviction... Of God's Word is a necessary part of that. So I wonder how many of us go into our Bible reading each day or prepare our hearts for Sunday morning by asking, by asking the Holy Spirit to bring conviction through the Word. Do we long for the necessary work of conviction? Do we want to experience true and lasting change? The convicting work of the Word is necessary for all spiritual growth and maturity. It was was John Stott who said, and listen carefully to this, John Stott said, Scripture is the chief means which God employs to bring His children to maturity. The Word confronts. The Word convicts. And now the Word converts the word of God contains the truth of God and when this truth is declared it confronts sin and sinners the Holy Spirit however attends to the word and brings conviction you see conviction as we have already seen is when I move when I move from merely acknowledging that the word of God is true and that sin exists to understanding that the word is talking about me I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I'm poor and needy. But friends, when the Holy Spirit is efficaciously calling sinners to repentance or successfully, unstoppably calling sinners to repentance, the process doesn't stop with conviction. It leads gloriously to conversion. Look at verse 38. Those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The gospel is declared. The people are cut to the heart. They ask, what do we need to do? What, What do we need to do in response to this? And this is the answer. Repent. Repent and be baptized. You will be forgiven of your sin. You will receive the Holy Spirit and you will be added to the church. Notice as well, two other specific phrases. The first at the end of verse 39, everyone whom the Lord calls to Himself. That's an important statement. The second midway through verse 40, save yourselves from this crooked generation we know that this is the sovereign work of god but man is responsible to respond friends what we have in view here is nothing less than the miracle of regeneration peter is announcing to his audience what jesus told nicodemus unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of god so repent and be baptized experience the new birth Your sins will be forgiven. You receive the Holy Spirit and you'll be added to the church. First, Peter calls on each person in his audience to repent, to change their mind about Jesus and to see Him as the Messiah and King, which they clearly had failed to do already. But this change in how they view Jesus must also include a change in the way they view themselves. They are sinners who have rebelled against God. In other words, for these people to repent, it would mean a radically reoriented life with respect to Jesus, expressing deep sorrow over their rejection of the One who God Himself recognized as both Lord and Christ. Now, you'll notice that the wording of, of this in verse 38 can be confusing and, and has been used by some to support an idea called baptismal regeneration. The, the teaching that baptism is the means by which someone is regenerated or given new life in Christ. And that is not what is being taught here or anywhere else in the New Testament. But what we do find is how closely, and I want you to, want you to grasp this, What we do find here is how closely connected repentance is to baptism. You see, repentance is something that happens internally. Your thinking about Jesus is radically reoriented and you experience deep sorrow over your sin. The Gospel becomes personal. Baptism is the positive side of repentance. Where you publicly identify with Jesus as Lord and Savior. This is why Peter lumps the two together and talks about the result as the forgiveness of sins. You you see, if there was no baptism, then there wasn't any reason to believe that there was repentance. Turning to Jesus in faith had an inward and outward element. Repentance and baptism. This is why both happen in our text before someone is added to the church. I think author Bobby Jameson is helpful here. He writes, In the New Testament, all Christians were baptized. And all the evidence we have points to people being baptized as soon as they embrace the gospel. After trusting Christ, baptism is the first thing faith does. It's how faith shows itself before God, the church, and the world. Baptism is where faith goes public. So the acts of inward repentance and outward confession through baptism were sufficient evidence that these brothers and sisters were called and saved by God and they were therefore added to the church. Verse 41. So those who received the Word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This reminds us, friends, when we arrive at those Sundays, when we experience the baptism of a brother or sister, this is no small matter. But it is a glorious declaration of what the Holy Spirit has already wrought in the heart of the boy or the girl or the man or the woman that stands before you. And they are following, they are following the Lord. In baptism, declaring to the world that I believe in Christ and He has made me new. The word confronts, the word convicts, the word converts, and finally it conforms. It conforms. Look at verse 42. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now there's so much that could be said here that I won't say this morning, but will show up again as we go throughout our study in Acts. But I do want to draw your attention to a number of things. What is it it that fuels all the activities of the early church? What shapes their life? It's no coincidence what is mentioned first because it's absolutely foundational to everything else. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is a community created by the Spirit, but it was shaped by the Word. You see, friends, the apostles were simply obeying Jesus. What was his commission? He commissioned them to go, make disciples, baptize them, and then teach them everything Jesus commanded. Well, that's what's happening here. It's glorious, isn't it? There's a a glorious simplicity to this text. In fact, here's what I love about this little snapshot of the early church. There is nothing creative here. No signs of human ingenuity. There, there are no frills. This is Christ centered, spirit empowered, Bible saturated church. Yes, God radically saved 3,000 people, but He did it as the result of an evangelistic sermon by Peter who was totally hitched to the Old Testament. And it was very confrontational, wasn't it? But the Spirit awakened the people listening. He drew them to Christ in repentance and faith. They were baptized, and now they are gathering together hungry for God's Word. Brothers and sisters, I think this is a church worth emulating, don't you? Now, as we continue to read Acts and study Acts and work our way through the New Testament, the church is not without its problems. It's not without its challenges. But it is good for us to linger here. Here's what else they did. Having been brought together by sovereign grace and into a special kind of unity, They shared meals, and they prayed. God graciously did wonders and signs through the apostles to further validate their message. And then what does the text say next? Verse 44, "...and all who believed were together and had all things in common." They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now this is one of those where you say, okay, so clearly they were taking things a little too far. See, the early church was marked by their love for each other and their incredible generosity to each other. You see, they took the gospel so seriously and were so overwhelmed by the love they had received in Christ that it just spilled over into this new way of life. When they considered the grace of Jesus that they had received in the gospel, it produced this kind of fruit. Now, to be clear, this is more about a community shaped by God's Word and the love of Christ than it is about any particular political system or way of thinking. And you can find this text placed in support of many things that it shouldn't be connected to. You see, it's simply describing the kindness and care of these early Christians. You see, their primary objective was not to accumulate as much as they could, but to make sure that everyone in their faith family was taken care of. These Christians understood that everything they had was from God, and it was for God. They gave thanks to God for His provision, and then they asked how can I use, how can I use what I've been given for the glory of God and the good of my brothers and sisters? Now, this scenario in our text requires that the people serving each other actually knew each other. They didn't live in isolation from each other, but they shared life together. And they're not doing this. They're not doing this because the apostles required them all to be in a small group. Now, this was simply the natural overflow of their shared belief in Jesus, their common obedience to the apostles teaching their unity in the spirit and their genuine love for each other. Brothers and sisters, a text like this reminds us that the local church is a good gift from God. It is a good gift from God. In his classic book, Life Together, Diedrich Bonhoeffer says, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. Now I understand that some of you may struggle to agree with Bonhoeffer. You think about the ways you've been hurt by other Christians. You think about broken relationships, good friends that have left for other churches. And all of this tempts you undoubtedly to retreat from other people, to protect yourself from potential hurt and difficulty. But friend, if the devil devil can convince you to isolate yourself from the body of Christ, then he will have cut you off from one of God's primary means of grace in your life. So let me encourage all of you. Fight against cynicism as it relates to the body of Christ. Don't be one who sits back and complains about relationships gone wrong. Rather, be an agent of change. Be intentional and work hard to cultivate an Acts to relational culture here at Redeemer. In, in fact, this past week, I was thinking a lot about this and, and how the Gospel should shape our relationship. I was thinking about god who was relentless in pursuing sinners even when they were running the other direction i thought okay does that have anything to do should that have any influence on relationships within the church yes is the answer but then i thought about the immediate context in acts and i thought about us Now most everyone knows that this church has been through lots of change over the last few years. Many people have left and many new people have come. Which means that this church in its present form is actually new to everyone. Much like the church in Acts would have been. They went from 120 to 3,000 in like one five-minute sermon. So, brothers and sisters, what what if we all, understanding that God has sovereignly brought us together, what if we all resolved to personally work toward cultivating greater unity and more meaningful relationships within this body? What if we all purposed that each week we would go out of our way To meet someone new. And then within the span of of six weeks. Of meeting new people. We invited one of those people. Or one of those families to go out to lunch. After the Sunday morning service. You see if if you feel like you're on the outside looking in, I promise you that this sort of resolve, this sort of decision, this sort of purposing in your own heart would radically change the way you feel about this body of believers. But the point of this would not simply be to get everyone more connected, though that would happen. The point, the point of this is that I want you to enjoy God more. I want you to enjoy God more. And you will enjoy God more as you participate in this good gift that He has given to you called a faith family. Most people, most people deep down inside read the description of the church in verses 42 through 46 and they say, yeah, yeah, I want, to be a, I want to be part of a church like that. You see, everybody wants to be on the receiving end of a friendly and generous church, but very few, very few want to go out of their way to be the ones who are friendly and generous. But that's what it will take. Let the gospel propel you toward other brothers and sisters. So, Redeemer, there are a bazillion churches in the Twin Cities, and that might not be an exact number, but there are are a lot of churches in the Twin Cities that can and will offer A better Sunday morning show than us. And they can and will offer more programs than we will ever have. But there doesn't have to be a more loving church. And there doesn't have to be a more gracious church. There doesn't have to be a more generous church. As the Spirit continues to awaken us, as the Word of God continues to shape us, may the fruit of this glorious work be increased love and greater generosity. And I understand that this sounds horribly mundane to many people. They want to be part of a church that's doing something. But they fail to realize the supernatural appeal of a truly loving and generous congregation. In fact, look at verse 46. And day by day, tending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And what was the result? And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When the Spirit of God is working in a group of people, when the Bible is shaping them and the Gospel is fueling them, it will be obvious to everyone as people see the love they have for each other and the authentic happiness and generosity they exhibit even in an activity as mundane as a shared meal. Brothers and sisters, God will use this to bring sinners to repentance and faith adding them to his church. So I'm struck. I'm struck as I consider this text that everything involved in the formation and growth of this church in Acts 2 is supernatural. And yet everything they did as a church is surprisingly normal. I can imagine in closing if the apostles lived today that when people heard about the explosive growth in the church in Jerusalem, they would have been invited to lots of conferences. And so I I picture them in a large arena full of pastors and church leaders all looking for the newest church growth secrets. And the question is posed to them. Guys, what's the secret? What can you share with us? How can we see the kind of growth that you've seen? Of course, Peter would be the spokesman. And I think his answer would be something like this. Well, start with preaching Christ crucified and risen. Then pray. Pray for the Spirit to work in power. But then give yourself for the rest of your life to the task of knowing and declaring the Bible. In the final analysis, I think he would say, as we all look back on what we've experienced, we, we simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, we did nothing. While we slept, while we slept, the Word sped ahead of us, advancing from Jerusalem to all Judea and then Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. But there was no grand scheme or strategy it happened through lots of faithful local churches who preached the word like we did in fact in fact this is probably not the answer you were looking for when you invited us but we did nothing the word did everything let's pray Father we ask that by your spirit and through your word you would awaken us awaken us individually awaken us as a faith family to embrace your good plan for us move us toward each other in meaningful relationship move us out together on mission. Help us not not to be those who are constantly looking for something new, something fresh, some secret. But as a whole congregation, might we embrace the power of the Spirit through the preached Taught, read, memorized, sung word. And just see. Just see what you might choose to do. It is your word that has revealed to us our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, even as we sing together, all I have is Christ. It is your word that reveals that truth to us. So, Father, again, I ask that the Holy Spirit would attend to the preaching of the word. That our hearts, even in this moment, would would be confronted, convicted. Anyone who is lost here this morning might be converted. And then together, we might all be conformed into a church that reflects your beauty, your holiness, your grace, and your goodness. We pray this in the name of Christ who is our life. Amen.